Charlie Gladstone here. Welcome to my Mavericks podcast. Thank you very, very much indeed for joining me. This is episode 29. Wow. Today's conversation is with the chef and author, Olia Hercules. If you don't yet know Olia's work, and you may be one of the 100,000 or so who bought her first absolutely brilliant book, then I think there's a great deal to enjoy here. If you have already heard of her, then there's a great deal to enjoy here. Don't really know what else to say. This is actually the result of my second attempt to record a podcast with Olia. My first was on one of those snowy days in London that seemed to happen really for only a few days every generation. I went over to her home in near to Bow Road in East London, about an hour and a quarter's journey. And when I got there, I found that my podcasting machine, um, my recorder, my digital recorder, wasn't working at all. Um, I didn't realize that until I'd recorded 25 minutes of conversation with her, so I tried again. And then after 15 minutes, the machine broke again. Actually, I discovered after a little bit of Googling that it was entirely my fault, but I discovered that another day. Anyway, Ollie was incredibly gracious and invited me back a week or so later. And so I went back on one of those rainy days that are all too common in London. In fact, the first trip was, was really good fun, um, even though I didn't get anything to share with you. Um, on my way back, I was imagining myself trudging through the Russian winter and you'll see why that was relevant when you listen to this podcast. And everything was going really well in my imagination until I fell over in the snow. I had my old Red Wing boots that I absolutely love on, but the, the uh, soles now are completely flat on. It's really painful falling over when you're an old bloke like me, of course, but also you feel really stupid. There were a couple of young girls taking photographs of each other in the snow, and I thought, God, they're going to think I'm stupid. But then I realised that they completely either not seen me or just totally ignored me. So that was kind of okay. Anyway, um, today I went back and I met with Olia, and I think we had a really wonderful conversation, which, interestingly enough, was totally different to the conversations that we had before. I deliberately try to keep the conversation fresh by really just thinking about what I want to know as the conversation meanders. And so that's what I decided to do today, to kind of forget everything that I'd learned in our first two conversations. Olia is a really inspiring, intelligent, clever, and probably very brave woman. This is a story of travel, of family, of food, of family stories, of happenstance, of hard work, and then eventually of some brilliant books and no doubt a brilliant career. So anyway, without any further mumbling from me, here is me talking to Olia Hercules in mid-March 2018. I will explain before this, but yeah. that I had a slight balls up and I'll, I might explain on tape what it was but anyway okay. thanks for seeing me again <laughs> okay. in your lovely kitchen um, and um, when I was leaving here last time uh, it was snowy and then it's absolutely pissing with rain today yeah it's anyway so just to get going um, yeah. what I think is is um, really interesting is that you were born in Ukraine and now here you are living in a very fashionable and beautiful part of London having achieved massive success, particularly with your second book. 
Um, and it's been, a, it's been a very interesting journey. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that it's been a, um, you know, any more difficult a journey, perhaps, than lots of people. But, but nonetheless, um, you've come from you know, one very distinct place and ended up in another very distinct place. And you've made all your own luck, haven't you? Yeah, I guess. I guess so, yeah. So you were born in Ukraine in 1984. Yep. You're so young, <laughs> I kept again. thinking it was 1974, because that's more like my vintage. But you were born there in, in 1984. Yes, exactly. So, so talk me through your sort of early years. Um, so born in the south of Ukraine, um, just an hour away from Crimea. Uh, so it's the Ukrainian steppe, super flat and actually really hot. So from April to October, we'd have a really, really warm season. Um, and yeah, we were just, an, I guess, an ordinary uh, family like everybody else. But with Russia, and to some extent, kind of looming over you. Uh, I mean, yeah, Russia has always uh, loomed over Ukraine since, uh, I mean, since the, um, since forever, really. Uh, but the Soviets have, um, especially in the south of Ukraine, have tried to suppress kind of culture and language. But your, so your parents, when your parents were growing up, were things harder than when you were growing up in terms of the, the Russian influence? Uh, I mean, yes and no. Uh, I guess things were becoming a little bit easy in the 80s with Perestroika and Glasnost and, you know, things were definitely changing in the 80s and the Soviet Union was going down, essentially. Um, during my parents' time, uh, in, you know, uh, when they were, they were little, if you spoke Ukrainian, you'd be called Saluk, which means a villager. Um, so, so you, you know, it's a derogatory outlawed. thing. It wasn't outlawed. It wasn't outlawed, of no. course not. But um, uh, but it but but it was it was seen as um, you know if you were called a peasant as a, if you think about it, peasantry has always been a problem for the Soviet Union anyway as a class uh, because they were actually the ones that owned their own land, which was not favorable for for, for the Soviets. Um, but things things started changing a little bit in the eighties, I guess. But still, I didn't. My my Russian is was better than my Ukrainian. I didn't start learning Ukrainian until the second year at school. So I asked my mom once, we're Ukrainian, I feel Ukrainian, why do we speak Russian? And yeah, So you spoke Russian at home? And yeah. And you learned Ukrainian in school or? Yeah, my my, I spoke Ukrainian with my grandparents as well, a kind of a dialect, I guess. Uh, even with my parents, it was, it was something in between, Russian and Ukrainian. It was quite, yeah, quite a f funny dialect we had, actually. But you, did you feel, did you feel Russian. I mean, d no, no, I didn't. Even though no. one of my grandmothers is from Siberia, but I've always felt Ukrainian. I'm actually reading quite a lot of um, Ukrainian history books at the moment, including uh, Red Famine by Anne Applebaum. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's an incredible book. What's it called? It's by Anne Applebaum. Uh, 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 Red Famine. Okay. Her, her new uh, book on Holodomor and how uh, well, yeah, how the Soviets kind of, kind of controlled us in that way as well. Uh, and it's fascinating on how Ukraine has never really had, or the, the borders were ever changing, uh, but somehow we managed to have this separate language and a separate culture and separate cuisine, etc. So it's a really fascinating thing that I'm still learning about. So do you think that the, that, so it's, it's interesting to me, so essentially I think using the word oppression is probably a bit strong, but I mean you were, you were under somebody else's governance. Was most of your culture squashed out by that? 
Yes, in some and in some places more than others. Uh, so the closer to Russia you are, the more so the e eastern Ukraine. Mm. Um, you know, is a completely different story. But even the south of Ukraine, where I was, where where I grew up, you know, uh, yes, really quite suppressed and and so do you culturally. think? Do you think then so that a lot of your culture was kind of taught to you at home, sort of within the confines of your family walls? Absolutely, yes. And so that so is is that to an extent where the your interest in in food and that the the kitchen table came from? Absolutely, yes. And um, if you think about it, so life in the south of Ukraine, even during the kind of tougher Soviet years, was very different from what you had in Ru in Russia, especially in big Russian kind of cities. Um, well, we were still allowed to have a little bit of like a plot of land. So we were always felt really close to, to, to the land. Yes. And, you know, my, my grandma, we, we, weren't, it, we were still as equally poor as everyone else, but we didn't rely as much on the horrible kind of produce that you got in these, well, near empty Soviet shops. Uh, my, my grandma always made her own bread. Uh, she had a couple of goats, so we always had fresh goat milk. Uh, she grew all of her own vegetables. And because if you think about the, the, the climate of Ukraine, we were able to grow all of these incredible things for pretty much six months of the year. And then whatever, whatever we didn't have during winter with preserve. So all of these things that are super fashionable, like fermentation, etc. you know, we just, we just did, did it. Yeah, we didn't have any fresh vegetables in winter, but we had all of these beautiful pickled tomatoes and cucumbers and all sorts of cabbages and, and that, used that in our cooking. So was that, were you allowed to keep a little bit of land or were you allowed to keep all of the land that you had before? Oh gosh, no. My, uh, so uh, my, one of my grandfathers uh, comes from a kind of impoverished nobility, but, but they were quite poor by the time the revolution came along anyway. And my grandmother's family were actually quite uh, well-to-do peasants. So they had quite a lot of land, but everything was taken away. And you were just allowed, what, a, a sort of garden, a large garden? Kind uh, of yeah. Uh, once, once everything settled down and once Stalin died, things started changing a little bit. Um, uh, but yeah, every, everything was taken away. Even my grandmother, who was Siberian, who was Russian, uh, lived in Siberia. Her, her father was a cobbler, which meant that he was a... Sorry, my soup is boiling over. Um, I love the fact that I'm sitting in your kitchen with, with the, the master <laughs> chef and she's cooking. Uh, just making loads of broths for my family as they're a little bit under the weather. So my, gran my grandma's, my Siberian grandmother's um, father was a cobbler, which meant that he was kind of a business person. So he was shot and that house and cow were taken away and they ended up, like her mom and the four children ended up in the streets. So the Bolsheviks, the communists were bad for or people all over the Soviet Union, let's say. Was there, a, I mean, was there a sense of, at home with your, with your grandparents and your parents, was there a sense of, of optimism or, or pessimism during this time? I mean, I imagine that it just, it was what home was, so you weren't sort of rationalising it, if that's the right word, but do you think it was, a, was, was everyone downtrodden or were they happy in an, an individual, in their individuality? Absolutely, the, the latter, yes. Um, well, me as a child as well, I mean, everybody, everybody seems to romanticize their childhood in a way. Um, or perhaps my parents just made it as happy and light as it could have been in whatever circumstances we were. We weren't really aware of 
what was going on that much. Maybe by the age of six, uh, I remember my cousin saying, because, you know, at school you'd be indoctrinated, Lenin, da 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 you know, all of these things. And she'd say, so she said something about Lenin and my, said, and my dad kind of lost his temper a little bit and said that Lenin was a piece of shit, basically, and made her cry. But, you know, it, it was... By the time that the Soviet Union was breaking apart, we were absolutely aware that we're entering a new stage. And even though we knew that it was going to be really hard, and the 90s were horrendous. I mean, I was talking to my mom yesterday, who's visiting now, and she was, you know, we were talking about politics, actually, and she just said, yes, and I remember, you know, the 90s and how hard they were when, you know, your children are sitting there doing homework in candlelight because, you know, they would switch off electricity every half an hour or whatever. And, uh, but we kind of, but it, we, at least it wasn't Soviet Union and we were, there was hope that something was going to change. Um, but yes, we were aware. So by 1990, when uh, I was due to become a, a pioneer, basically a stage before you become a pioneer. So this youth, Soviet youth club that you join, uh, my auntie, who was my teacher, I remember her having an argument with the, the headmaster of the school and saying, there's no way that my class are doing that because this is the end of the Soviet Union, even though it was, there was another year before it happened. Right, and she won the argument, did she? She won. She, we, did, we did not do it. She said, they're not doing it. How interesting. It. So you were taught by your aunt, and so your, your family was... It, it's interesting, that, because it was... I mean, your whole life was family, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's why... I mean, that's and friends, why... I guess, but... Yes, but uh, we had a really, really strong feeling of family, and um, I mean, it's easy to understand why when you when when your family, or your grandparents go through so much uh, trauma and hardship, and you know, my one of my my granddad was put into prison because during the, the hunger years he took a, a few kind of handfuls of wheat home and he got caught and uh, you know they put him into prison he was only released after stalin died right. watch death of stalin by the way such a great movie it's really yeah. good um but yeah so it's as soon as stalin died my grandmother uh, you know it was it was obvious that my grandfather was going to be released and so imagine growing up, so even me in the 80s, would still, you know, would sit down and have this really, really happy time, as, as you say. We, mm. they, it was, there was a lot of lightness in it, but there would always also be times when somebody would start telling a... They were amazing. They're all amazing storytellers, by the way, well, my whole family. They're incredible. And, do you, you think, know, sorry, do you think that's to do with... Is, is that a uh, Ukrainian thing? or Because I, I'm not convinced that the... The Brits, for example, are very good storytellers. I don't think we have that in our culture, and yet you hear it so often from other countries. Maybe there's um, an element of some something folk in it. I don't know, or being or, or, or being in the countryside and doing that. I don't know. I'm not really sure. No, I'm how not it's sure. Different, I, but I don't. I don't have any theory. I, just... I don't know. No, neither. I, I don't know either. But yeah, definitely, storytelling is is a is a big, powerful thing. But I think. All, all over the ex-Soviet Union, you'd get families like that. I think it comes with that, with being connected to something that had a really big impact on your family. So something like being uh, displaced, you know, how your, your home taken away, you know, you kind of try to pass on the story so people don't forget about it. And it's oh, really horrible because now people are, so many people in Russia seem to have forgotten, you know, because Stalin is all of a sudden this great figure again which is just ridiculous. Uh, 
Um, so yeah, so storytelling and sometimes, most of the times so there would be, you know, light and funny and great stories and sometimes they'd be really sad and people would cry at the table and I, you know, you can't not get affected by that. And a lot of this was lived out over food at the kitchen table. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah, really, we had a really, really long, so especially in the summer, uh, we'd be at my grandmother's house and they had this huge walnut tree with a bed underneath, this old springy bed that my granddad used to like having a nap on after his shift as a driver, he was a taxi driver. Uh, but we'd sit at this really long table and would eat and the adults would drink and yeah, would just um, quite idyllic really, but also uh, with this flavor of uh, storytelling, which wasn't always jolly or, you know, which could become quite serious at times. So in many ways, I mean, we're, we're, we'll, we'll sort of come on to this, but in many ways, these experiences, these stories, the family, the food, the location, is entirely what's informed your professional career. I mean, that is in some ways the essence of what you do now. Yes, absolutely. And, um, but you know, it was always kind of second nature and I never even realized how special all of this food or experiences were, not even until I actually became tra trained as a chef. I think because I was never a cook. I never cooked before I was in my early 20s. Is that because you, is that because you left the Ukraine um, as a relatively young person? Uh, so I left Ukraine when I was 12 and we lived in Cyprus for five years. Uh, my mom always cooked. She's an incredible cook, really just uh, amazing. And I was always too lazy. I just didn't want to cook. I loved eating, but I never really cared for cooking. I didn't understand it. Um, and then it was actually, I, I, I studied Italian and, um, and international relations at University of Warwick. And then I went to Italy for a year and I saw how young people cook there. And then I went to Sicily for a bit and I tried this very simple dish with three ingredients. And I realized, wait a minute, it, food doesn't have to be complicated or you can have these amazing three ingredients. And that's what that's why it can taste so amazing. And that's why perhaps some of the Ukrainian food that I attempted to cook in the UK didn't work because I was a poor student and the only shop that we had on campus in Warwick was Tesco. And yes. you know, I'd, you'd buy yeah. this horrible chicken from there and of course it would not be the same thing. You know, I made this pasta dish once from Uzbekistan because that's where my dad was born. Um, so it's, it's literally... Uh, poached chicken and then you use the stock and the chicken fat you use the chicken fat to cook the onions in and then you make this homemade pasta and you boil it in chicken stock so it's, it's very simple it's almost three four ingredients but it's just the most incredibly tasting thing I but it didn't work it didn't work it didn't work when i was a student when i used ingredients that perhaps weren't the same as what we would have used in the ukraine you know and italy was the place where I made this connection and then when I came back, not quite even, I, at that point I just knew, I just kind of started understanding why food is amazing and that I wanted to start cooking it. But that was just home cooking at that point. But before I retrained that, when I was 26. You, you were translating, you were using your Russian and Italian and English skills. Uh, yes, straight after university I, uh, I worked as an assistant uh, translator. So kind of translating for magazines like Index on Censorship on kind of what Putin was doing to the media. 
Right, okay. And things like that. Um, actually, I've translated some poetry and things like that. So yeah, it was it was an it was an amazing thing to do, and I really enjoyed it. But it was a little bit of a, a lonely uh, job, I think, being a translator. It wasn't really for me. And then it's interesting what you say about Italy because I always think the essence of Italian cooking is that kind of three ingredient simplicity. Yeah. So so that country gave you something of an epiphany, really, and, and made you realize that food was great. But the beginning of it, yeah, yeah. just kind of a little. T- <laughs> <laughs> but you still, but then you, you, you still were thinking of doing other things. So what was it that made you decide to train to be a chef? Uh, I was working as a, I uh, was a uh, junior reporter at Screen International, which was a great job actually. Uh, but then the 2008 crisis hit and uh, people were being made redundant and I kind of felt that maybe I'll be the next person. So I went to my editor and said, and then my friend actually, my best friend who I just saw yesterday, she was my uh, news editor, my boss, and she, and she saw me talking about food and she turned around and she said, are you thinking of retraining? The, the ease with which she kind of suggested it made me actually go to my editor and say, am I going to be next, perhaps, on the, in this whole crisis, you know, getting a redundant situation? And he said, uh, yes, possibly. He was very honest, which I'm very thankful. Thank you, Connor. <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, because I was thinking of retraining to be a chef. And he said, go for it. And... And go for it, you did. And I quit and I went and my, yeah, eventually uh, I wanted to take a bank loan out because, it, you know, Leith's was really quite inexpensive. Um, so you went to Leith's? I went to Leith's, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but my mum and dad, uh, bless them, were still able to help me and they did. And uh, I did two terms. I did intermediate and advanced and I got my, uh, I got my uh, certificate and then uh, I didn't get into where I wanted to be which was the mag- magazines I cocked up an interview and then I decided to go into restaurants and um, and that's what I did for the next kind of year and a half. So Leith's is, is still regarded as, as the best or, or one of the best? One or? of the best and uh, it, it really is fantastic it, it gave you so much knowledge and practical skill and uh, kind of confidence in in you know because knowing why certain things happen really uh, it, it does give you that extra bit of confidence I think uh, but it was also restaurants where all of the skills were honed so but kind of you, being able to chop uh, like a chef and doing service and stuff you 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 learn that in restaurants so you've got so in other words you, you went to Leith's and you thought yeah this is really good but you knew that you had to go and learn at the coalface. Had I gotten that job at the magazine, I probably I would have gone for it 100%. It was not getting through that interview that kind of upset me and made me want to, I don't know, either prove something to myself or punish myself or whatever. I just thought, well, actually, it would be, it would be interesting to go and work in this super male-dominated environment and see if I can do it. And, and, and you did. And, and you- I did. And you worked for Ottolenghi for a time, but you worked elsewhere as well. Yeah, I worked in a place in Fulham as well and did some other stages in different restaurants and stuff. So, yeah, it was an invaluable experience. I think right now, being able to go and do a residency at a restaurant or a pop-up of my own with my own food kind of uh, gives me... That experience gives me advantage now because I, I know I know how to be organised, I know how to you know uh make it work basically and without too much stress i'm never i'm not one of those uh cooks that shouts in the kitchen i like to no. be super well prepared and then just have a really good time did you work in very aggressive kitchens uh not so much overtly aggressive perhaps i know that there have been places that were a lot worse 
but there was definitely an element of uh, you know passive aggression, which was very unpleasant. Um, why? why so why is that? I mean, I, I hear this. You know, you hear this a lot from chefs. There's this kind of it's it's clearly a pressure pressurized environment. I may understand that, but why does it then turn into this kind of extraordinary? hot, aggressive pressure cooker, it's, often male-dominated. Well, so we, yeah, so we just uh, did a panel. I, I was part of a panel and we talked about it last, just last week uh, at Cordon Bleu School. Um, and I think the conclusion that we came to, well, a, a conclusion that I came to at the end of it was that it's, it is an incredible, it, it's an incredibly hard environment. It's real graft. And you do have to put all of your self into it. And not everybody is kind of cut out to, to be doing it. And some of those people that think they should be there and are doing it can really lose it and become actually really mean. But I don't think that you have to be mean. If you really, really love something, what you're doing, and you surround yourself by chefs and by people that really love doing it and the, the food and actually down to the ingredient, I, I find now that the kitchens that, that I go into, if there's a chef, somebody there, or, or a bunch of chefs who, who are so into the actual food, so caring from your suppliers, are the ingredients that I'm using good for the community? You know, it's like an overall ethos. If that's good, you're bound to have a team that is happier than in other kitchens. I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that that's yes. what it is. Yes. And, and going away from that hierarchy and saying, I'm the, you're, you're the sous chef, you're the commie, you're da, 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 da. You know, uh, there was a, a woman, Asma, who has a, uh, a kitchen that she pays everyone equally, even the, if the KP, especially the KP. It's the hardest job, you know? What's the KP? KP is the kitchen porter, somebody okay. who washes dishes. And again, it's another thing that you see. If you go into a kitchen and, you're, and the KP is treated badly, you just know that it's, it's, just, it's just going to be generally quite horrible. Which could probably be applied to any workplace yes. but but the environment and the time pressure and is 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 very and the heat actually and the, and the heat yes exactly so space. you need to really 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 love it and to be to understand how to run that kitchen so it's uh, so there's the least amount of pressure you know and in in so many kitchens even when people are trying and especially the the younger ones that it's you know they're still sort of idealize everything and stuff but if you see that somebody is genuinely trying don't put them down. Like, why would you do that? that that's very counterproductive. It goes against to what, what you want to do. If you want this to be a gorgeous place where people come in and eat and can feel, I know it's this cliche, but feel the love. I think it all comes to... I suppose it just comes down to whether whoever's sh the head chef is, is a happy person in themselves. I think you know, so. I mean, yeah, ultimately, it's a big, yeah, exactly. Know, it's either you're, you know, you're either happy and you can be kind and supportive or you're not happy and you're a bully, I suppose. Yeah, but ki kindness is key, I think, yes. in, in uh, most things. But uh, kitchen, when it's really hard as well. Of course, you can lose your temper during service. I mean, it happens. It's f that, and that's fine. That's absolutely fine. But you but can do that with kindness as well, remember? Yeah. Can't you? I mean, it's yeah. interesting because I, I, this comes up a lot in these conversations. I mean, I, I'm a great advocate of kindness. I think it is the, almost the most important tool we have. But yeah. um, you, can, you can give people a bollocking and be kind. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, many reasons, but um, yeah, it's interesting to actually talk about it. So, so you, you, you trained as a chef, and, but, but then, you know, fast forward not a huge amount of time, and you're a hugely respected and commercially successful food writer. How did that come about? 
Um, I was actually, so I got pregnant with my son and it was a surprise. So I, even though I worked until pretty much he, two weeks before he was born, uh, doing service as well as pregnant, but on a freelance basis. Um, uh, after I had Sasha, I started working again when he was six months, one, one year properly full time. And I was a recipe developer for a startup company, which was actually a really lovely job to have when you're still kind of breastfeeding a one year old. Mm. Uh, and because you on, can do it because you can do it in your own time, provided the results. It, it was I could I could manage it basically. Mm. I could I could kind of manage it, and then uh, and then that kind of company uh, sadly fell apart, and I lost my job essentially, and uh, and uh, I was unemployed, and uh, I couldn't find work. It was February as well, a really bad time to start work, looking for new. How long work. ago was this? So that was in 2000, just two, 2015. Right, okay. 2015 or 14, one of them, I can't yeah. remember. And, um, and the conflict in Ukraine was happening at the same time. Everything was kind of, so many horrible things were happening actually at that time. And then to kind of, because I had this young child and I couldn't let myself uh, be sad, I started, uh, and I was also kind of writing for The Guardian already, uh, on a freelance basis, again, just completely by, by mistake almost. Well, Guardian Cook were amazing at uh, giving young writers a, a chance to, to write for them. The section's gone now, right? Uh, Cook, Cook is gone, it's now Feast. Uh, yeah, I thought Cook was fantastic. And it, and it was actually quite revolutionary in a way because it, it didn't just use people who were already established, you know, they gave someone like me a chance. And not only that, they also spotted, you know, they were also asking for the recipes that were Eastern European and they gave me confidence in that because what I haven't mentioned is that, you know, as well as kind of our culture and language, we may be Ukrainians, I don't know, maybe all Eastern Europeans in a way have this, some of us have this complex uh, about the food because we've always been told, oh, Eastern European food is just potatoes and dumplings and it's boring and grey and it's like, yeah, if you, if you went to some... Soviet restaurant in the 70s and they gave you this gruel. Yeah, it was disgusting But if had you gone to my grandmother's house in the south of Ukraine and she'd given you Some of the dishes that had ended up in my first cookbook mamushka. It would be a completely different thing. Yes So, so that, that began to really rankle with so you. That, that began. Yeah, that gave me yeah. confidence and kind of and you know I would just message my mom and say mama they want another one of your recipes. How amazing is that? And then when this whole thing happened with losing my job, I just started Skyping my mom and uh, and I said, why don't we start collecting these recipes? Uh, they're actually really exciting and I'm being told that they're exciting and unusual and different. Uh, you know, you, because otherwise, why wouldn't nobody have done it in the 30 years since the Soviet Union had broken up, you know? And then, um, and then an agent spotted, uh, spotted a, a few recipes in, in Cook and uh, contacted me and one thing led to another and by April I, I had uh, three publishers who were kind of... Uh, Amazing. And what, I mean, me. that was, do you think that was, I mean, obviously, you know, let's take it as granted that the recipes were great um, and, and, you know, and you're a terrific sort of personality and, and an intellect. But do you think that it was just that it was the luck of timing, that, that cookbooks were big and yet so many cookbooks were the same, that they were people wanting to reach out and explore cultures that had Oh, there was absolutely an element. Almost looking for it. Uh, absolutely an element of that, yes. And I think... You know, it's funny when my when my the, my first um, recipes kind of appeared from Amushka in the Observer. Stupidly, I looked at comments below, and I really shouldn't have done that. People can be so vile. Well, but, but somebody said, "How can you talk about 
uh, about Ukrainian uh, dishes and stuff when these babushkas have been blown up in eastern Ukraine and all of this. And it's, and it's just like, um, uh, you know, it's actually given, given Ukrainian people a little bit more than these horrible headlines and the maybe don't people... look at the comments because they're, no. they're, there's you know and anyway <laughs> the truth is that 99 percent of people are positive but you only notice the negative ones i know but it's also uh, maybe it was time because ukraine was in the headlines but people suddenly realized oh where is ukraine and then they look at the map and it's half of, you know it's a huge part of europe it's bigger than france even when crimea was annexed you know it's still a massive country and people must have thought, oh, wait, I don't know anything about Ukraine or Ukrainians. Or yes, but that's what I mean. I are mean, they I think... Russians and they're bears? You know, yeah, and I mean, it was good, you know, <laughs> it, 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 was, it was good timing, really, because it was, uh, it was becoming unusual even then to find food from a culture that hadn't been introduced to English readers. Exactly. By which I mean readers of English, not just people in England. I mean, you know, so there was potentially this whole world of kind of America and Britain that suddenly could be introduced to this. And that, and that was just, um, I suppose that was just really good timing. But so it was, anyway, the book was, I mean, the book is clearly brilliant and it sold, it sold really well, hasn't it? Um, Mamushka has, yeah, yes. all, worldwide, kind of over 100,000 copies, which for, yeah, a debut kind of niche cuisine book has done really well, it's I think. It's incredible. And, and so, and, and, and that, I mean, obviously that's because the recipes are good and it also has more depth to it, which I think books at that time in your sphere were looking to. But do you, what do you think? Why do you think it became so successful? Uh, well, it was a very personal um, book in a way. Um, I mean, I wrote it in about four months. It just came out of me. I guess it was there, there waiting as, you know, as again, another cliche, but everybody's got one, haven't, haven't they? inside of them and then it can come out if they can come out if they can come out so yes. so mine came out and um since it's been published I've, apart from people you know british people connect with it and and they love the food it maybe it's something interesting they love the stories they love learning about something new and quite a few people who have very similar stories and very similar feelings about kind of their childhood and you know have been in contact have they? Yeah, yes. even, but even Ukrainians from a kind of fifth generation Ukrainians who live somewhere in Canada, you know, would say, finally, there's something that kind of uh, is, uh, I don't know, so they grew up again with these stories told to them by their parents and grandparents. And reading that kind of just, I don't know, they so made a So you've given them connection. a voice, essentially. Uh, yeah, or something to... Uh, kind of connect with on that level yes through food and and through stories as well and then your second book came out last year yep uh, and and that was that was even more of a kind of um that was even more of a sort of travel yes um, book really wasn't it i mean it was food but it was it was it was a book of movement and and different places Caucasus, yeah um Again, I have a I have a family connection to that region. One of my aunties is half Ukrainian, half Armenian, actually, but she grew up in Azerbaijan. So um, yeah, I just wanted to repeat a journey that I did thirty years ago with uh, with my mom, brother, and, and my dad. So we we drove from Ukraine through Crimea, took a ferry to Sochi, and then just travelled through Georgia and into Azerbaijan. Did you do that for a holiday when you were a child? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a very spontaneous one as well. They just yeah. decided to go and they even forgot to send them a tell. We had to stop somewhere on the way and send the family in Baku a telegram saying, oh, by the way, we're coming. <laughs> 
my parents are Brilliant. like crazy like that. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's such an interesting um, area. So you part. So this this time a couple of years ago, or whatever, you piled into a, a van or a car and set off on the same journey. So Crimea was the next. So and it's uh, it, now it's proving especially impossible to to enter it, uh, which is really sad. So my brother and I went to Georgia. We just flew in there and then we took uh, a Marshutka car, which is just the car that you find at a bus station where, you know, a van, pay five pounds and they take you kind of three hours east, north or west. And uh, yeah, we just went into people's homes and collected recipes and stories. And Did you literally went... just knock on doors? Uh, not quite. I, I, I kind of just um, put a word out on social media and I said, Dear George, dear friends who are Georgian or from Caucasus, do you know anyone who'd be interested to talk to me or give me some recipes? And then one person was recommended and then through that it just snowballed. And actually, when we were there in Georgia, so it was really quite spontaneous. We didn't have, for my research trip, we didn't have an itinerary. It, it just happened. And the third book is at what stage? So I'm doing research for my third book now because as amazing as Mamushka is and it, it was still a kind of a personal, a very personal kind of collection of family recipes. What I want to do with the third one, I'm actually going back to Ukraine because I've realised reading all of this literature and since Mamushka has been published, you know, how much I actually don't know about Ukraine and how much there is still to discover. You know, of course, some places that we've been to as children and have relatives here and there, but so many vast areas have completely slipped my kind of uh, field of knowledge. Uh, so, and, and actually, it's so much of it has been, again, suppressed by the Soviets. So, and, and now there is a revival happening. Right. And people are talking about it and they say, oh, you know, they're, they're planning to do this DOP system where a certain, uh, for example, there are these dried smoked pears that you can find in Poltava, you know, that they use to make borscht with, you know, they throw it into stock. There is this technique from my area where they used to uh, dry uh, these really tasty fish out and then blitz them into a powder. So in winter you'd have this fish powder to put into your bush to season it and to you know add nutrition. But it's almost Japanese and or, I don't know. Yes, it's, it's very umami. interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. So there's so much to find out, and I'm kind of on this quest to find all of these recipes and uh, again stories. So are your books translated into Ukrainian? No. You could do it. Uh, oh, yeah, I definitely could translate it, and I would but actually insist on translating it, but I'm afraid that Ukrainian publishers well, not were either yet. not interested or not, I don't know, there was something no. happened, so it's not translated into Ukraine. Nobody knows about me in Ukraine. So w without wishing to kind of, you know, overly project too far ahead, do you see your career as, as involving, particularly with a focus on um, Ukraine, kind of bringing, as it were, semi-lost heritage food back to life. Is that what really gets your heart beating? That's absolutely the mission, yes. And you've just discovered this, you know, a few years ago. That's, that's amazing, isn't it? I yeah, mean... yeah. A, lo a lot of it, of course, we kind of, kind of knew but didn't, if you know what I mean. So after, so all of these things, it's almost like looking at things with different eyes. You you know, what like I meant a... is you discovered the passion you know, you didn't know that, or maybe it was just... But even, I don't know, like a, one of these stew recipes my whole life, because my mum just made it, and you just think, oh, you know, it's just a stew, and then 
and then once I became a chef and once you also other people see it or you, you look at it in new ways and you're like, oh, wow, this technique of making this dough is actually really interesting because nobody else does it this way. And there's a reason for it. And it's a complete new kind of, it's, it's like an epiphany. It's, it's really, it's a gorgeous feeling, actually. And, and, and I, I imagine, but, but I might be putting words into your mouth, that your mission is to, is to essentially produce books that people can really read rather than just dipping into. I mean, yes, of course, people can dip into them, but you could read one of your books from cover to cover, couldn't you? I hope so, yeah. That's, but is that the aim? <laughs> that's the idea, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. It seems, you seem to succeed in it. <laughs> Um, well, that, that's, that's absolutely amazing, and thank you so much. I will explain to um, our listeners <laughs> at, at the beginning of the kind of calamitous start on this. Um, what, what would, just, just to sort of finish off, is there anything at all in life, food-related or otherwise, that you'd recommend at the moment that you're enjoying? Books? Anything at all? Yeah, I mean, a, a really immediate thing was actually the sportsman uh, in Kent. You know when, what I was talking about when you kind of go into a restaurant and when you eat it, you kind of feel that everything behind scenes is beyond. But they've they've won best pub in. They Britain have, and maybe they don't year. need this plug. No, no, but, no, I'm, no, I'm but, intrigued. Uh, so I'm actually really excited about getting the book now, because I want to know how something as actually Ukrainian as um, uh, pickled herring, you know, something that I grew up with, and I thought that I hated one of those things that actually very Ukrainian, uh, some of the amazing herring in Ukraine as well, not into it. He did something to it that just completely blew my mind. Amazing. He, he's, um, and, and he, I mean, he, you, you have to book months in advance to get there or not. Yes, and, and, I, and I tried two months in advance and actually they were, they were booked up and we, we just put our name on the list for Friday lunch and then it miraculously kind of became available. And Georgia, if people do travel, I do highly recommend that they, they go to Georgia. Right, okay. And I've just written a, an article for Noble Rot about it. Um, so, you know, just uh, recommending where to go and eat and what to well, see. Noble, so that'll be coming out in the next edition of Noble Rot. Oh, it's already know. out now. It's already out. Yeah. Okay. okay, well, you can get that then. <laughs> Great, well, thanks so much. No, thank you for having me. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed to Olia for that. I'm so relieved, as you will have learned from my intro, that that actually worked, that I won't say any more, except that I'll be back very soon. And I'm really, really grateful to you for listening to me. And thank you very much again to Olia. See you soon. Bye. <laughs>